Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunlight. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an update on the status of the union for non-tenured staff at Skidmore College. Then, in a political and sexual assault case, we hear about felony charges being reduced against Joe Brady of Waterville. Later on, we have a Schenectady City Council update about the passing of a resolution in support of the Clean Slate Act. After that, we examine the issue of access to healthcare services for immigrants in the Capital District. And we finish with another Media Sanctuary intern alumni spotlight by Lavender with Oliver, with Olivia Stalvi. But first, headlines. Schenectady City Council President Marianne Porterfield will run for mayor, setting up a Democratic Party primary against three-term incumbent Mayor Gary McCarthy. Schenectady Republican Committee Chairman Matt Nelligan says he will run on the GOP lines. Mavis Discount Tire wants the appellate division to drop the national order repair chain as a defendant in the civil lawsuits filed by the families of the 20 people killed in the 2018 Skahari limousine crash. The families claim that Mavis contributed to the crash, which was blamed on brake failure by not doing recommended repairs and putting an an inspection sticker on the limo's windshield without doing a proper inspection. The full state Senate, in a 39 to 20 vote, has rejected the nomination of Hector LaSalle by Governor Hochul to be the chief chief justice of the state's highest court. LaSalle's nomination had previously been blocked by a vote of the Senate Judiciary Committee, meaning it did not move forward. However, Senate Republicans filed a lawsuit to force a full Senate vote. The Senate leadership decided to bring it to a vote to settle the matter. A judge has issued a preliminary injunction in the state lawsuit against the Norlite hazardous waste incinerator and aggregate production facility in Cohoes. The judge ruled that Norlite was a nuisance and outlined corrective steps they must take in 90 days to improve its operation. The judge has not yet ruled on the motion by Lights Out Norlite to intervene in the case. The attorney general says she she would support having the citizens group join the public nuisance part of the case, but wants to block the effort to bring in the recent state constitutional amendment that guarantees the right of New Yorkers to clean air and water. As global warming heats up the planet, the Albany area broke records Wednesday as afternoon temperatures rose into the 50s and 60s, 20 degrees above normal. The city of Albany set a new record for February 15th with a high of 61 degrees, beating the old record of 55 in 2006. A white supremacist who killed 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket was sentenced to life in prison without parole Wednesday after relatives of his victims confronted 
him with pain and rage caused by his racist attack. That's it for headlines. For our first segment, Mark talks with Ruth McAdams, a member of the recently recognized union at Skidmore College of non-tenured staff, which has begun negotiating their first contract. We're joined by Ruth McAdams, who's a non-tenured professor uh, in English up at Skidmore College. And last fall, uh, Skidmore Faculty Forward won a a vote to unionize part of SEIU Local 2000 uh, United, representing, I believe, around 200 non-tenured teachers. And they've recently begun negotiations with the a college over a contract, union contract. So, so Ruth, why, you know, why did people feel there was a need, uh, you know, for a union, and what are some of the key issues that you look forward to trying to address with the administration? Thanks so much, Mark, for having me. Um, our central issues are really bread and butter union issues, things around compensation and job security. Um, for years, non-tenure track faculty have um, a- attempted to raise these issues with the administration on a more individual basis and um, really got nowhere. So um, a few years ago, we decided that the way forward would be to team up, um, to work collectively, to um, advocate for, um, for, for better working conditions and, and, and higher pay that's in line with the cost of living. And that's also fair when you consider what our tenure track colleagues are being paid to teach the same courses. Um, I would say that um, job security is a major concern for us. Um, the college has a tendency to use short-term staffing to fill long-term instructional needs. Um, so for example, um, a person will be given a, a one-year contract um, with no possibility of renewal, when really the teaching that they're doing is something that will need to be taught next year and that will need to be taught for the foreseeable future. But the college is, is withholding greater security from those faculty, which leaves them very vulnerable to reprisal and um, constant expecting to lose their job, which takes a, a, a professional, economic, and psychological toll. Now, one quick question I have, I myself in the way past have, have been an, uh, an adjunct uh, faculty at uh, some local colleges. Uh, is, is this a somewhat different position in terms of the non-tenure teaching versus adjunct? Skidmore has um, both full-time non-tenure track faculty, like me, I'm full-time, and also part-time non-tenure track faculty or adjuncts. Skidmore tends to prefer the term part-time, but yes, we're talking about adjunct faculty. Um, All of those non-tenure track faculty are now represented by our union. Now, just reading another news article, um, the college was saying that it's, I guess, for full-time non-tenured you know, the pay is a little above um, 30000 but one key issue is that Skidmore is in Saratoga Springs, and that cost of housing is, I guess, 70% higher than the national average up in Saratoga, not a, you know, exactly a cheap place um, to live. Has the university administration respond to some of those, you know, cost of living type of uh, issues? The college's um, uh, compensation packages are often opaque, and there are. Um, it has been very difficult for us prior to unionization to get accurate information about what our about what our colleagues are being paid. Um, yes, the cost of living in this area is very high. 
Um, Saratoga Springs is obviously notoriously expensive, but even um, in the surrounding area, it's 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 pricey, and faculty are struggling to meet their housing costs. Um, Non-tenure track faculty come from all walks of life. Um, some are older, some are younger, some are doing this temporarily, some are doing it permanently. Um, but across those different lines of 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 um, of difference, there are widespread concerns about the pay being inadequate to people's basic economic needs. And my, my recollection is that tuition is get more is is relatively on the high side, so it's not like the the students are, you know, being provided bargain rates for uh, their college credits, if, if I'm correct. You're absolutely correct about that. Skidmore tuition is very high, and our students and their families um, bear a very heavy burden. Many of them make big sacrifices to send their students to such a wonderful um, and prestigious institution like Skidmore. Skidmore is a wealthy institution. Um, at the recent faculty meeting on uh, Friday. February 2nd, our president, Mark Connor, confirmed that the college's financial outlook is strong. Um, therefore, we think it's 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 only it's only it's only fair for the non-tenure track faculty to be fairly compensated. Um, uh, Skidmore is not cash strapped, and yet um, many of its faculty are. So that's maybe a two-part um question how you know now that in fact the union vote took place and pretty you know strong um margin of, of, of support you know how has the administration you know responded to the concept of a union and in terms of this is your first contract you know be looking you know a, a few weeks few months few years few decades in, in terms of when uh, they might actually agree to a contract the college's response to our um, successful unionization was very professional, um, and they've been collegial um, in the past uh, weeks and months as we've taken steps toward beginning the collective bargaining process. Um, I've never done this before, but I've been told that first union contracts can take a very long time to negotiate. We've been told somewhere between 12 and 18 months, and um, so that that's what we're expecting. Are there issues, you, you've mentioned several of them, you know, you know, pay obviously being one of them, I assume access to benefits, but, you know, what, what are some of the other key issues that, um, you know, may become a central part of the uh, contract negotiations? I would say that access to benefits is particularly um, a particularly powerful issue for part-time faculty. Um, these people have um, little to no access to any benefits and even not just things like retirement savings and health care, but also just things that are, would be much less expensive for the college to provide, um, such as access to um, campus technology, um, the ability to use campus resources and retirement. Um, Part-time faculty don't get any of those things, and I think that that will be an issue for us. One issue I think um, is also the matter of, of health insurance. Um, some non-tenure track faculty are here in the short term. They're, they're here to meet an authentically short-term need. So for example, when a tenure line faculty member goes on sabbatical, sometimes a non-tenure track faculty member needs to be hired for a, on a one-year basis to fill that teaching. Um, those people um, are often coming straight out of graduate school. They're often needing to move across the country for the position, and they're often expecting to have to move across the country again um, when the position ends. And 
all of those moves are very expensive. What's more, um, a one-year position at Skidmore comes with less than nine months of health insurance. Um, coverage typically begins around the beginning of September, and it ends before the end of May, um, leaving those faculty scrambling to cover their health insurance costs for the entire summer that follows because, of course, academic work is uh, seasonal. Um, so I expect that, that that will be an issue down the road. Um, how has the Skidmore students themselves um... You know, they provided support to the uh, union organized effort. And, you know, are there things that the, you know, the member of the greater, you know, local community can can do to try to, uh, you know, fraud the uh, administration a little bit? The students have been so supportive. I've been moved um, to hear from so many um, current and former students and students that I've never met before, but who um, but who've expressed support for our movement. It's been really moving to me to see that um, they understand that um, our working conditions are their learning conditions and that if we aren't adequately cared for, that it's hard for us to teach them in the way that they deserve to be taught. Um, so their support has been wonderful. The community um, has also been really supportive, um, not only the tenure line faculty, but also the staff and also the larger um, Saratoga Springs and, and, and Capital Region community. Um, as for what the, the the community can do to support us, I think, um, you know, to, to, to keep keep your attention on, on this issue, um, to, um, you know, help, help us hold the administration accountable, to have labor practices that live up to its admirable values. Um, Skidmore as an institution um, uh, has a, you know, purports to have some really wonderful values about um, justice and equity. Um, and we um, hope the college um, through the collective bargaining process will will um, extend those extend those values to its to to its practice of treating non-tenure track faculty. So we've been talking with Ruth uh, McAdams, uh, a non-tenure professor English department at Skidmore College about the trying to get a union, new union contract, first union contract for the Skidmore faculty forward. Um, just quickly, if, if, is there a place for people if they want more information about this? Yes, our website is skidmorefacultyforward.com. The forward is spelled F-W-D. So skidmorefacultyfwd.com. Thank you very much. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So we will certainly continue to provide ongoing coverage of the uh, union uh, situation up at uh, Skidmore. Uh, I will note that several other local unions have been formed of um, taking quite a few years. I think it's three years at the uh, for the nurses at Albany Medical Center to get their first contract. And while Capital Roots uh, actually recognized the union uh, without the need for an election, uh, those negotiations have also been going uh, quite slow. But um, that's one of the things that... Uh, Sanctuary for Independent Media, Hudson Mohawk Magazine tries to do is to cover the efforts of, of local workers for, for better wages and living conditions. Thank you, Mark. Our next interview, Mark interviews reporter George Joseph about the unusual criminal case against Joe Brady, a Waterville resident who was a high-ranking employee in the New York State Assembly while running a local motorcycle gang under investigation for murder. The charges involving sexual assault and improper imprisonment involving teenagers uh, were, was recently reduced to misdemeanors with no public explanation. George Joseph of the city uh, is reporting that the 2020 felony charges against Joseph Brady 
the Ward of Elite resident and former legislative director recently defeated Assemblymember Peter Abate of Brooklyn have been downgraded to misdemeanor charges. The charges still include sex abuse in the second degree and unlawful imprisonment for allegedly displaying a gun when a teenage victim and her boyfriend attempted to flee um, Brady's home during an incident where drugs were involved. Uh, the police are also continuing their investigation for additional perpetrators of a homicide by a motorcycle gang that Brady helps lead. Abate speculated whether the reduced deal may be in exchange for Brady's cooperation into an ongoing criminal investigation of gang violence. I personally first began to pay attention to Brady after he and his brother had been paid to do a study opposing the bill to divest the state pension funds from fossil fuels, uh, even though he worked for the committee handling uh, the issue. So thank you very much, George, for joining us. So so why did this Brooklyn paper decide to, to cover what's going on with the uh, felony and misdemeanor case up here in the Capitol District? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Um, the reason that we got onto this story is because Joseph P. Brady used to be a top legislative staffer for um, Assemblyman Abati, who was a veteran Brooklyn elected official, head of an important committee having to do with public sector workers, and just a longtime presence in the Capitol. Um, and so where we came in was we had gotten a tip that his felony sex abuse charge had sort of disappeared. And so when we started to look at the court paperwork, that tip checked out. And sort of that was the start of our reporting process, trying to make sense of what had happened in this case. So trying to make sense of what happened in the case, can you give us sort of the, the listeners sort of a brief you know, overview um, what the, the, the police or the prosecutors or alleged happened? Sure. So in October of 2020, Joseph Brady was arrested after an 18-year-old woman alleged that she and her boyfriend went to his house. Um, her boyfriend was 16 at the time, by the way, um, and that during that uh, encounter, they were made to take drugs. She said that she was told to take cocaine uh, and that she did. And then Brady allegedly claimed that actually, ha ha ha, you took meth. Um, afterwards, she told police that she passed out um, and found herself in a different part of the home. Um, she felt a pain in her vaginal area. Um, and she, after consulting with her boyfriend who had been sent out of the house during this alleged incident, um, believed that she had been sexually assaulted. So she and her boyfriend felt they told police that they needed to get out of the house. Um, they felt that they were not at liberty to do so. And when they allegedly ran out of Brady's house, um, they claimed that, that he tried to stop them and pulled up his shirt displaying a gun as a sort of threat to, that they couldn't leave. Um, they did leave the house, as they, according to their allegations, um, and eventually get to a hospital. Um, after that, they spoke with police. Both of them gave statements. And uh, Joseph Brady, who at the time was, as I mentioned, a legislative uh, staffer for a longtime state assemblyman, uh, was arrested. Um, and his charges initially included a felony sex abuse charge, which can result in between two and a, and the third to seven years of prison time or time behind bars if one is convicted. Um, what our reporting found was that that felony charge was dropped 
apparently by a grand jury action of some kind. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. We don't know what charges the prosecutor's office presented to the grand jury. We don't know what kind of evidence the grand jury heard and if they made some sort of unilateral decision to drop the charge. But we, what we do know is that now he's only facing misdemeanor charges, which means that he could, if convicted or if he pleads guilty, face up to a maximum of a year in jail or behind bars um, and not necessarily even that much. Now, David Soares is the uh, district attorney in Albany County. Did he have any comment on, as to what uh, might be going on with uh, Mr. Brady and the reduction of charges? I was honestly shocked that despite numerous emails and phone calls to his office, including today after the story came out, I followed up again. We heard absolutely nothing from District Attorney Soros' office, though District Attorney Soros is someone that frequently pub, uh, comments sort of in public high-profile cases. Um, I was also curious that uh, Simon Mabati, who, who was a very close race, but he uh, just recently lost um, re-election, was willing to actually say, that, well, maybe, um, you know, they cut a deal with Brady. So he testifies in an, a, another investigation of, of motorcycle gang violence in exchange for dropping uh, these charges. That seemed a little bit unusual for a former state assembly member to be sort of suggesting that with regard to his own former legislative director. Yeah. Um Thank you for reading this article so closely. I appreciate it. Um, you know, as reporters, we just try to reach out to all parties that are possibly involved in a case. And one of them, obviously, was Assemblyman Peter Abate because he had, uh, you know, worked with uh, Brady for, for many years. Um, and he pointed to important context, which the Times Union reported on back in 2020 when this arrest originally happened, which was that. Joseph P. Brady, in addition to having this high-level position in state government, was simultaneously leading a sort of double life as a leader of a motorcycle crew or gang, um, which had been on the eye of law enforcement across the state, um, in Saratoga County in particular, and among state police, for uh, alleged acts of violence and drug use. Um, for example, as the Times Union's Union reported some members of Brady's motorcycle gang were involved in a public beatdown of a allegedly disrespectful teenager in broad daylight in Troy, New York. And Joseph Brady himself was questioned as part of a law enforcement investigation into the murder of a motor gang motorbiker from another uh, motorcycle club. Um, so all of that context is important when we are trying to understand, um, you know, what other sort of potential criminal probes Brady has been or may be tied to today. Now, I, I guess as I should point out, as you did in the article, that one possible explanation for the reduction in uh, the charges, particularly related to the sexual abuse, is that the, uh, the female victim had passed out and so she was not able to say what, in fact, directly occurred to her. And her boyfriend, while suspicious, was not there when it occurred. And he only saw uh, the situation after he came back. Was that was that something that independent, uh, you know, legal person 
pointed out or, you know, was that any way offered by the uh, local prosecutors? Yes. Yeah, so in lieu of having any information or sort of public transparency from the Albany DA's office, we went to prosecutors, uh, current and former prosecutors from other jurisdictions just to sort of get their read on, on the situation. And what their read was is limited because obviously they don't have access to the full case file. They haven't interviewed the witnesses or the people that were involved in the case, the defendant, et cetera. And so what they could sort of speculate on was only based on the sort of public court documents that we obtained. Um, however, you know, it's important to note, as they did in our story, that just because this charge was dropped doesn't necessarily mean we do not have proof that that was a result of some sort of quid pro quo deal, a cooperation deal. Um, it could have been because of some underlying problems in the case, which we're not aware of because both the local police in Water Vliet and the Albany DA has not talked to us. Um, we've been talking with uh, George Joseph of the city, recently reported about felony charges being reduced against Joseph Brady. Uh, in the last 20 seconds, uh, George, first people want to read your article. What's the easiest way to do that? And is there any key fact that we've not covered? Well, thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to read the article, just check out our website, which is at thecity.nyc. That is the URL. And if you just search George Joseph Journalist, The City on Google, you'll find uh, a link to my recent articles. And this article is the most recent one. Thank you very much. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So as I mentioned, uh, I became interested in this situation because of Brady's involvement uh, with the state legislature. It was quite unusual for an employee of the state legislature to be doing outside work and getting paid to evaluate a bill coming before the committee, which he worked for. And yet for some unknown reason, uh, the state assembly did not investigate this when it was brought to his attention. It was also hired by a police union to do what would be an incredibly shoddy study, which at a college would have gotten an F uh, for the type of research that was done. And why a police union would be hiring somebody who was under investigation for murder by the state police uh, is also quite odd. And then the fact that the uh, district attorney, David Soares, apparently has reduced the charges against this individual without being willing to publicly disclose the rationale behind this decision. It's just sort of odd. And I decided when I saw that the Brooklyn papers were covering it because he used to work for a Brooklyn assembly person, I thought we would give the Hudson Mohawk Media uh, Magazine an exclusive here in the Capital District, but hopefully some other uh, news outlets uh, will be picking it up. For those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunlake. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOS LP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOS LP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOA LP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, relative, co-worker, or just a stranger on the street. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org.
On Monday, February 13th, the Schenectady City Council passed a resolution in support of the New York State's Clean Slate Act by a 4-3 margin. Moses Nagel reports on that meeting. On February 13th, the Schenectady City Council planned its vote on the resolution to support the New York State Clean Slate Act, which would seal criminal records for employment and housing after several years of good behavior. The council heard first from the public, beginning with Claudia Kavanaugh. Tonight you're going to be voting on the clean slate bill that's being proposed in legislature. I hope that you consider the employers and property owners when you're doing this. Um, in reading about your clean slate act, I didn't read the categories where you were not going to add. You know, I could understand like small pot offenses or something like that. But you have some very serious people who were incarcerated and they've been paroled or um, and trying to get their lives back together. That's fine. But I do think that in order to have a society where people, you know, have informed consent, if I have property and I want to know who I'm renting my property to, and I'm not the only one who feels that way, and it's not being mean to anyone, or, but you, 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 when you make decisions in life, you have to live with your decisions, even if they do mean incarceration and you are a lot, you know, freed later or whatever. I, I just hope that at some point that you guys get passed, and I'm so tired of every single time I read an article about the city council, it's black people, white, black, white. I have never in my life heard so much about race in my life as I have since this council. I, I, I gotta tell you, I was born and raised in this town. Think about something that benefits the entire city. Next was Anthony Alexander. I'm a parent of seven, but I raised more than seven of different races, different nationalities, because that's how my grandmother raised me. I give a damn about the people and I give a damn about these kids. I don't been to prison. And I'm in a situation now, I'm in that catch-22. If I get an apartment where I'm at, it pays a substantial amount of money. But DSS only gives 378 to get a place to live. That still leaves me homeless if I get a job. We all here for a common cause. Guess what? Amend some of this stuff with clean slate. Amend some of this stuff. You ain't got to agree with everything, but some of the stuff, okay, one step at a time. Let's get the foot in the door so all of us can have a chance to get a job so we ain't got to worry about if I get a job, I'm homeless the next day. Councilman Carl Williams addressed his vote. It's important to not allow our fears to be at the detriment of others who have already paid their cost for their transgressions. And I would like to be very clear that it's not taking what they did to end up at their current predicament or stance in life lightly. That's to understand that there was a cost, that the expectation to be eligible for this uh, legislation item is to be paid in full with continued service. So for me, I wanted to point out a situation that happened with an individual that just came to uh, the rail where it's an assumption was made about me and what I'm not doing. I have the opportunity to respond or provide more context, but how often do individuals have that opportunity to have a similar conversation where they can truly speak to what they've done and how rehabilitative they are? More times than not, that, that opportunity is not given. And as individuals that are advocating for the betterment of all individuals in this community, if we hear of a process or a procedure that is not effective or not working, it is our responsibility, it is our obligation 
to take a moment to pause, deliberate, and understand what can we do to improve the functionality of something that is already in place. So I'm proud to say that I'm in support of this, and I look forward to the efforts that us as a council can continue to do to address the needs of this community. Council Member Palomini. Where's the clean slate for the victims and their families? There is none. It continues forever. Even acts that are so-called minor stick with the individuals for the rest of their lives. Families have been destroyed because of actions of others. Individuals have had their lives turned upside down and destroyed. There's no clean slate for those individuals. There's no making something a little easier for them. And it's impacted them in ways that cannot be measured. This just doesn't make sense. How can we look those individuals in the eye and say, yeah, we're gonna give clean slate for people that impacted you. I just don't see it. I vote no. Council Member Porterfield, who was chairing the hearing. Ms. Kavanaugh brought up a few points about what's in the legislation, and, and I encourage you all to read it because there are some stipulations in there that tell you with individuals this will not impact and cannot benefit from it. So sex offenders are not covered under this. I just want to make that clear. And also, if someone is working with a vulnerable population, children and older adults, they can still have access to people's uh, criminal background. And also, law enforcement still has access to this. So we just want to make sure that we, we're understanding this is not just a carte blanche and it applies to everyone regardless. That is not the case. I also want to point out the fact that several months ago, this council approved funding for a um, housing in the city where ex-offenders formerly incarcerated people could live. And the majority of the people on this council now were on this council then and voted in favor of that. I find it a little puzzling that we're allowing some people to benefit and then when it comes to maybe another for whatever reason that we're going to vote differently. In addition to that, we, I believe that we need to give people another chance and there's, there are things put in place that you have to serve your time and then wait three years after all time is served and everything is done if you had a misdemeanor, and then seven years if you've had a felony. You cannot, within that time, have had another interaction with the law enforcement. So there are systems in place, there are things put in place. It's not just, you know, you could just get it and you don't have to, um, I, I'm gonna use the word prove that you are ready to contribute to society and that you've, you know, you're sorry for what you did and you're willing to continue to move forward and contribute to society. So with that, I vote yes. The council also heard from Reverend Nicole John-Simone, president of the Schenectady chapter of the NAACP. You know, one of the hardest things I, I've ever had to do uh, was forgive the person who killed my mother's youngest sister. Uh, her name was Pat Patricia Ann Bowens, my favorite aunt, <laughs> uh, who was shot and killed in Philadelphia. And I had to come to terms with the fact that the person who killed my aunt deserved forgiveness. And that's something I, I dealt with as a Christian. It's something I also dealt with mentally, uh, emotionally, in a whole lot of different ways. And our prison system is supposed to be a re rehabilitation system, at least that's what they say. And at some point, that's got to work, we got to trust it, and we got to give people second chances. Uh, one thing that I do appreciate about that legislation is that people do have to you know, wait three years or seven years to prove that, you know, they are willing to be productive citizens in society. So I appreciate you guys seeing the positive impacts that it could have. 
2.3 million New Yorkers are gonna be impacted if this legislation is passed and be able to have a fresh start. And a good number of those 2.3 are parents. How much better could a child do in school if their parent could get a job? If their parent could come out of being incarcerated and actually fully be their parent? You know, so we, you gotta look at the positives of this and stop acting like these kids aren't dealing with the, the situations that their parents are dealing with in regards to incarceration. And so it's having been a teacher as well. Um, I was an educator, that was my first degree before theology. So I was a teacher. How many children were so excited when their parents were able to go home but did not realize the stress that their parents had to deal with because they couldn't get a job. That's a reality for a lot of these children. You wonder why these children can't succeed is because they're stressing about things they don't need to stress about. And that includes having parents that cannot get jobs because they've been incarcerated. And this is the last thing I wanna say. Um, there are certain crimes, no, there are certain things that when they were in my community were a crime, but when they went to other communities, they became a sickness. I think about the number of people that are gonna come out of prison who went to jail for having a nickel bag or for selling weed, and they're gonna come out and find smoke shops smelling, selling marijuana and making lots of money off of marijuana while they still have to have a record. So when marijuana and opioids were a problem in my community, it was a crime, but as soon as it went to other communities, it became a sickness. People have a right to be free. Thank you. Finally, the council's votes were tallied. The motion passes four to three. Supporters of the Clean Slate Act hope that it will pass the full state assembly during this upcoming session. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. So that was a report from Moses. Uh, you know, previously the last month meeting, one person was missing, so that's why it had been a three to three vote tie at the last time. There are now 15 localities in New York State that have passed the resolution support the clean slate a law that includes Albany, uh, Ulster, and, and Columbia counties. Um, somewhat interestingly, the New York State Business Council has been rallying behind it because there's actually a lack of workers in New York at this point. Uh, so we'll be continuing to uh, update people on what the state legislature decides to do with this uh, criminal justice reform and employment reform during the upcoming legislative session. In this next story, Coco Luo, a student from Emma Willard, who is an immigrant from China, talks with Eunice Zhang about her and her parents' experience with medical care in this country. This is Eunice Zhang, and today I'm talking to Coco. Welcome, Coco. Can you give us a brief story of your and your family's journey as an immigrant? Yeah, of course. So I was born in Beijing, China, and I was raised there. My family um, and I moved out of China when I was 13 years old. We moved to Canada and spent there for a year. Afterwards, we immigrated to the States and we resided in Connecticut. And one year later, um, we moved again to upstate New York, where I currently reside um, in achieving my high school career. So throughout your time in the States, would you consider yourself going to hospitals or doctors often? And why would that be so? I wouldn't say so, no. And I have a couple of reasons that 
uh, to support my answer. I feel like the first reason why my family and I don't really go to hospitals or use the healthcare system in America is kind of because the culture that surrounds the idea of going to hospitals or using healthcare providers in America or in Northern America in general. I feel like right now we only really go to see our primary care doctors um, when we need scheduled annual or quarterly checkups or required checkups for individuals of a certain age, that means my parents, or for emergency occasions. I feel like those three are the main reasons and cultures of people um, in America going to hospitals and using healthcare providers. And these are the reasons why we don't really go to hospitals as much. The second, I think, is the idea, um, and I think this is really widespread, is how expensive the healthcare using the healthcare providers in America are. And I feel like the reason that contribute to the culture I mentioned above is the fact that the US healthcare system requires substantial financial support. Um, my family and I are lucky enough to be in a place where we're able to afford that for most of the cases, but for a lot of other immigrant families out there, they may not have the support that we do. Thirdly, for my fa family specifically, we don't really see the point of going to the doctors or going to the hospital besides regular checkups, partly due to the culture that I mentioned before, and also just because the standard regular checkups or checkups beyond the standard um, are also very ex expensive, despite our insurance cover. And it is also really difficult to find a good doctor around us, um, a doctor that may maybe speak our language and a doctor um, or specialist that can actually provide appropriate and effective care for our family's concerns, our checkups and other health related issues. Was there any struggle that you or your parents had to go through as immigrants? Yeah, I feel like the major struggle that we experience is the language barrier. The reason being that most healthcare providers will provide a translator on the phone. And when my parents, especially when they don't speak English, will go to a doctor, um, the healthcare provider will connect them with a translator on the phone and they can call to translate them. However, this may not get the best result because there are many jargons or specialized usage of language that only healthcare providers and the translator would know, and my parents will be completely oblivious of what is going on as there's, it's very difficult for them to explain um, or ask about what the language is over on the phone with the translator. And also because of the fact that most appointments happen during my school day, so if I were to be there um, if I wanted to be there, I couldn't because I have other commitments to do. And the third reason being that um, depending on where we go for our doctors or specialists, um, I may not always be allowed in the room with the patient, even though I'm literally their child. And this is because I feel like the privacy concern in America health is in, in American healthcare system. Um, and this doesn't really happen often, but it is one major concern because even as the patient's ch child, I'm not allowed to go in there and translate for my parents. And that like poses a very just like substantial barrier for my parents in getting the care that they deserve and they need. 
And I also feel like the issue of healthcare insurance coverage also was more of a bigger struggle because when we first immigrated to the States, we actually got our healthcare insurance uh, with the help of our family friend who helped us pick an insurance plan that they have used and they found was effective. But nowadays, there are many immigrants coming into the country that might not have this help. And because healthcare insurances are so expensive, there are also ones that don't necessarily cover everything. It is very difficult. Um, I could imagine if we didn't have help to get our insurance covered, since we simply do not know what plan to choose for or what plan was the most effective one um, that can help us cover our needed um, medical care expenses in America. You've mentioned earlier that you have moved from China to Canada to the U.S. Can you compare the healthcare systems in the state to healthcare in Canada and China? Yeah, of course. I feel like the biggest difference between China, Canada, and the U.S. is the culture of using the healthcare system, as I mentioned, as well as the expenses. In China, you could really go to the health hospital for anything, even for a fever or a cold. They'll set you up with a doctor and you will register and they will call on you um, with a number and you will just go with the doctor. The doctor will then provide you with medication or advices. Um, that you can then use you can pick up the medication in the hospital downstairs and you don't really need insurance to cover most of the expensive um, in the chinese medical healthcare system in canada obviously there's free healthcare or very low expenses for um, non-citizens um, if you have a permanent residency in canada aka a green card you will allow free health care and i feel like um, it is especially beneficial um, for the elderly. Although people or my experience and my family experience, we don't go to the hospital as often compared we do we did in China. It is still very beneficial for having a free healthcare. And though it is still mm -hmm. beneficial for us um, to have a free healthcare system and to benefit from that. When viewing the current healthcare system here in the States, could you suggest anything about it from your own perspective? Well, I believe that there can definitely be improvement in the American healthcare system. Um, from my experience and from what I know currently, it is especially difficult for lower income families, which many of the cases are minority groups, um, for them to get um, proper medical care provided. And to that, I'd suggest that. Um, there could be more healthcare related services provided to these groups. For example, as I mentioned, translation for immigrants, finding um, help finding a healthcare provider, insurance advisors. And these I feel like are all things that can be done to our current system into making their lives easier. I also believe that there could be more um, encouragement in young high school students or younger generation because there is in my opinion, um, a, a little bit of a nursing and physician shortage. And with that, I feel like that could really solve the problem of uh, people not finding enough good doctors or medical care providers around them. Thank you, Coco, for sharing your personal experiences and your futuristic insights today. Yes, yeah, so thank you for that, that coverage. What is interesting is the United States spends more of its gross 
domestic product on healthcare than any other high income countries, yet it ranks last in access to care, administrative efficiency, equality, and healthcare outcomes. We have some of the best doctors and nurses and medical practitioners in the world. We certainly spend more on healthcare than anybody else does. And it's certainly a problem for immigrants, um, but it's also a problem. We do not treat healthcare as a right here in the United States. So to close out tonight's show, the Sanctuary for Independent Media is run on people power, and interns are an important part of that power. Lavender, an intern alum herself, is working on a series of interviews with past interns to honor the contributions that they've made to the sanctuary and to pass on advice to current and future interns. Hello, listeners. I'm Lavender, and I'm here with Olivia Stalby, former intern at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Welcome. Hi. You were at the sanctuary a few years ago, back when when I was, when I first started out. Um, Mm -hmm. So how did you first hear about it and how did you get involved? Uh, So I first heard about it through a friend uh, named Jonah. Jonah at the time, I think was, I'm not sure if they were volunteering or like being paid to work there, but either way, they were, they were really heavily involved at the sanctuary and I had moved to Troy, um, kind of, kind of, sort of, because of Jonah, like, Jonah was one of my, like, really good friends, and, you know, just part of my, like, little community, and I was like, Jonah's at this place all the time, gotta go check it out, talks about it all the time, Um, so they were basically buzz marketing it 24-7, so I figured, might as well give it a shot, Um, so I, started volunteering as a a sound engineer on the what was it the hmm weekly magazine yeah yeah the nightly news which is what we're on now (laughs) oh boy throwback um and then i was terrible at that so i went to hosting (laughs) learned i was a little bit better at talking than uh audio like editing so yeah. Cool. And what what did Jonah do? Did you like explore what they were interested in? Yeah, so Jonah did everything. Um in my like that was my impression of what Jonah did. Jonah did a lot of um editing for uh, audio editing. Jonah would host every now and then like pretty regularly. Um, Jonah was pretty involved with the events that were coordinated. Um, I'm not sure if, you know, to what extent, but Jonah, Jonah had a finger kind of like in every pot, it seemed like, and yeah, Jonah, Jonah's, yeah, that was, that was, (laughs) now I feel like I'm, I'm as, as they had buzz marketed, um, (laughs) the sanctuary, I feel like I'm now buzz marketing Jonah just funny yeah but that's cool and then so you tried engineering mm-hmm. wasn't feeling it and then so terrible yeah it was and really then moved bad to hosting and you were you were a regular host correct yeah with um with h bosch jr do you remember that's right him? yeah of course yeah. so when did you end up leaving your role there and where'd you go on to after that so honestly uh, that must have been 2017 and I left because I started working at the Boys and Girls Club full time. I had started 
part-time as like an after-school something or other. And then I got a full-time position um, with one of their uh, like programs for a hydroponic uh, program. So that kind of took priority over that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know a lot of, like a lot of, most of the people that volunteer there have full-time jobs and then they, and then they volunteer. But I just, I didn't, never had the energy for that kind of thing. I'm like, work 40 hours a week and then go home and sleep. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. And I was, I was also thing. in college at the time. So like, it, yeah. it was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to all the volunteers. <laughs> Shout out to all the volunteers. Like, God bless y'all. Like that's, that's a lot to keep, keep it running. Yeah. So how would you say your time at the sanctuary influenced your life going forward and, and your career? So I would say that the sanctuary definitely like confirmed my desire to um, be involved with the community, but also confirmed my my want to teach. I wasn't in a lot of um positions, but I, I, I did have the opportunity a few times um, to teach at different points, showing interns how to do certain things. And there were like classes sometimes and with ki- there were kids involved. And it just, it was just such a community vibe. And oh my God, I hate that I said vibe, but it, it was, you know what I mean? I mean and, yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, I'm in school now to be an educator and it was like a pat on the back, like, okay, now do it for real. You know what I mean? Like, don't just do this, like, kind of do it full hog. Mm -hmm. Is that a thing? Full hog? (laughs) I have no idea. I'm always learning new phrases every day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you hinted at this a second ago, but what are you working on now? Um, So right now I am working on my bachelor's at Binghamton University to, we don't, we don't have a teaching bachelor's, but it's for, uh, what is it? And I always forget what it's, it's human development, human development bachelor's. And then I'll go on to my early childhood master's to be an elementary teacher. And right now I'm working at the children's home in Binghamton. Um, It's a uh, residential school. Um, So we work there a few days a week Um, and I'm a teacher's aide and it's super challenging and super rewarding. And I really, really love it. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. And and if you're, I feel like you're asking me like, no, what are you working on? Like, what are your creative projects? And I'm like, I don't have any girl. Like, what are you talking about? No, just like, you know, what are you up to? Yeah. Oh, um, I'm learning it's tennis, except <laughs> right now it's, it's freezing. Um, yeah. I'm learning tennis when it's not below zero. And super windy. And super, super windy. windy. Yeah. <laughs> the tennis balls go everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's great though. I I mean I know you always loved teaching, so I'm I'm glad yeah. to hear that you're really pursuing that. So what is something maybe one of the most impo- important things you learned from the internship at at the sanctuary? Accountability, definitely personal responsibility. Mm. Take take that stuff seriously, for sure. Although it was, you know, like 
I think I came into it with an attitude that was like, uh, haha, fun and games, especially because, you know, I was introduced to it through a friend. Um, and then kind of realized in short order that it's, you gotta, you gotta take any, any job, even if it's not a paid job pretty seriously, because people are depending on you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was an important lesson to learn. Um, I think I was probably 23 when I learned that. So definitely a late bloomer, but, um, no, but hey, we all we all move at our own speeds, right? They say the, your twenties is is when you're learning the most and discovering who you are. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's a good lesson. What would you say is maybe your favorite memory of your time there? Maybe some events you went to, or I don't know, just a moment that you recall. Um. Okay, so I I could tell you about a bunch of events. But when you said that, the first thing that came to mind was one day, you remember Trey? Oh, of course. Trey I Mon need to figure out how to interview that boy. Yeah. <laughs> no, just, I'll give you his Instagram. I think I still have it. <laughs> we were shoveling the entire property one day. And I mean, we, it was, I mean, I, he, he got locked out in like the kind of side porch and I, I think I tried to open the, the door to let him in and the snow was just up so high. This was one of those winters where it was just like, huh? the, the God was just like, yeah, this is six feet of snow today. I don't know. Sure. Why don't six, let's do six feet of snow. And he was, he was trapped out there and it was just like, we both just cracked up laughing or something like that. I don't remember what, but like. <laughs> I think I still have like pictures on my phone of him just like us being separated by this glass door and he's just like like cracking up laughing and the phone's shaky because I'm just like what is happening like why <laughs> why is this happening <laughs> it's like 10 a.m on a Tuesday or something but just like that that sort of hijinks just like and it's not even hijinks it was just like silly yeah. goofy fun times it's like that it's a fam it's family it's just everything I don't know everything about the the sanctuary just felt like that like wholesome you know what I mean it was yeah. it was good well thanks Olivia is there anything else you'd like to leave listeners with or maybe any advice you want to pass on to incoming interns give it a shot uh you know if you're if you're just hearing this and you haven't tried volunteering give it a shot and if you are volunteering and you want to try something new give it a shot you know um there's lots of different jobs there's lots of different opportunities and they're wide open basically so that's great that's really good advice well thank you so much for taking the time to to be right. here and share your thoughts always good to hear from you I do believe Olivia actually was uh, one of the engineers for several of the segments I did on, on the show. And certainly remember Jonah, who was uh, probably the first part-time employee uh, for the radio station. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunlap. We want to thank all the volunteers who helped tonight, uh, including uh, Lavender Moses Nagel, 
Eunice Jelong, and myself. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.